Hi, my name is Sukhraj Singh and welcome to the seventh podcast episode by Sikh Archive in our Sikh History podcast series. Today we're joined by PhD researcher Asha Soni to discuss the Sikhs of Iran with respect to the religious association between Iran and Sikhi, as well as the current day community that migrated there throughout the 20th century. Asha is well versed in Sikh literature and used to work with the Sikh Research Institute, where she had hosted several episodes about the Persian contributions in Gurbani and Sikh philosophy. She also has Iranian Sikh heritage and has conducted a lot of independent research on the history of the Iranian Sikh community in documenting their oral history. In this episode, we discuss the legacy of Guru Nanak in Iran, the linguistic identities of Persian in Sikhi, as well as some of the significance of the geographical position of Iran. And then in the second half of the discussion, we take a look at the history of the diaspora, the impact of the revolution that had on the Sikh community and their current standing in the country with regards to their legal status and minority rights. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. Right now, they have published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sikstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast to learn more about the Sikhs of Iran with Asha Soni. Who is Asha Soni? So I am currently a PhD student in sociology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I just started my first year this year. And prior to beginning my program, I spent some time working as a researcher for SICRI, the Sick Research Institute. And a lot of my work there did involve my ability to read and write Persian or Farsi. These are interchangeable terms. And yeah, I also have kind of done longstanding work with the Afghan Sikh community. And that was the basis for my bachelor's honors thesis. And it is work that's carrying with me today into my PhD program. I'm really interested in social movements and identity and migration and urban survival, which are all topics that will come up in today's conversation. So you're looking at the human and political geography aspects of this um, study and research. Yes, definitely. So in the first half of this discussion, I'd like to ask you about the religious connection of Sikhi and Iran. So let's go way back, because we know Gurdananik was in Iran. And I was wondering if you could share with us what his historical footprint was in that region. Yeah, so uh, most notably, it we have stories of uh, Gurdananik Saib passing through Khoramshar 
it is said that this is where by Mordana was buried. I can't, I think it's important that people move beyond trying to identify certain physical footprints when it comes to Gurdanaxaib's journey. I mean, this is something I talked a lot about in my work with Sikri. You know, the Janamasakis, which is our primary source of narrative, is not meant to be consumed as objective fact necessarily, but that doesn't make them any less valid or any less rich of a resource. But it is said that that is a notable site for Sikhi. It is said that that's where Mardana is buried. And we have stories of Gurdananik Saib stopping in different Iranian cities uh, as he was traveling towards Mecca. But they're a little less, I don't want to say less, but they're lesser known and perhaps less examined than some of the narratives we have, for example, of his passage through Baghdad in Iraq. Now, moving beyond a physical footprint, this this has left a, a metaphysical footprint. Sikhs have an awareness that Iran is one of the places touched by Gurdananik Saib. There is such a strong tie between the Persian language and Sikhi that crosses borders from the sub Indian subcontinent, India, Pakistan, through Afghanistan, through Iran. So that ties Iran into the story of Gurdananik Saib. And, you know, uh, there are Iranians that are aware of this, this narrative and this history as well. And could you explain the linguistic significance of Farsi or Persian with Sikhi? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I have spent, you know, the past two years really diving into this. So Gurbani has roughly eight broader languages that make up the language of Gurbani. So, uh, you know, there's common misconception that Gurbani is Punjabi. That is really a limiting view. Um, there are really eight major, I, I wouldn't say languages per se, but because the borders are a little fluid, uh, language groups, uh, Farsi being one of them. And Farsi, you can really see the way Farsi played a particular role in the subcontinent and the broader region of the Guru's time based on where it comes up in Gurbani. Uh, Farsi was a cosmopolitan language. It was not a language that was spoken in South Asia by a particular ethnic group, but rather by people that were involved in the court, people that were involved in cultural production, people that were involved in poetics, literature, uh, the transmission of certain elements of religion, in the Islamic context. So you see a lot of a lot of the references in Gurbani that are made in Farsi are to uh, Islamic thought or are to the riches of the court and criticizing, you know, this kind of decadent and short-sighted man-made structure of, of authority and accumulation of wealth. Uh, another fascinating thing about the way Farsi enters the realm of Gurbani is that Though it was a cosmopolitan language, there were many, quote, ordinary people who were made, you know, the court possible. I mean, this is true in today's context as well. The elites may control the state and its structures, but lots of ordinary people work to keep that state running, right? 
So there were ordinary people who spoke a colloquialized version of Farsi because this was their this was their trade, this was their occupation. And that form of Farsi is what is preserved in the Gurdur Granth Sahib because the Gurdur Granth Sahib aims to capture sounds exactly as they were said at the time and by the most common group of people, not based on the high standard literary Farsi. And this is true across the languages in the Gurdur Granth Sahib. It's always the, it's the folk register, the ordinary register that takes precedence. So that is something really unique and special about the type of Farsi that's that's captured in Gurbani. I think it's very powerful, particularly because you have critiques of power that are done in the linguistic register of the ordinary people. So it's actually quite subversive. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I wrote a piece on this that Farsi occupies an interesting space in Sikhi because I think every Sikh is aware to some degree the influence that Farsi has in the Guru Sahib or in Sikhi uh, in the Guru period. People are quite aware of the Zafar Nama by Guru Gobind Singh. Um, but I think people are less aware of Guru Nanak Sahib's full contributions in Farsi beyond one better known Shabad Yak Arj Goftam. And I think they're also unaware that Guru Arjun Sahib has a lot of Shabad that's in Farsi. And they're not the only Gurus that knew Farsi. We have evidence that Guru Ramdas Sahib also knew Farsi. Uh, though, um, Personally, in my time going extensively through Persian Shab and the Guru Granth Sahib, I didn't find many good examples. But that doesn't mean that we know that he was using Farsi outside of the realm of uh, Shabad. So, yeah, the, there's no singular part of the Guru period where Farsi took prominence, and it wasn't like just at the end. You know, I think people are aware that the Dasam Granth has a lot of Farsi in it, but I think people don't realize that. This is from the very beginning, you know, and, and it's something very consistent throughout the creation of Sikhi. And then, of course, we have Bainandlal, who wrote in Farsi, who's from Ghazni, Afghanistan. So, yeah, there's a lot of influence here. I think a lot of people are aware of part of it, perhaps not aware of the full picture, and perhaps aren't aware of the specific role that Farsi played culturally politically, religiously, so on and so forth. So we know the gurus were in Iran, and we have six today in Iran. Are they connected, or is there a gap in the heritage? Because my understanding is that the six of uh, Iran that are there today are from the 20th century, in particular after World War II. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so there's no evidence that any of the current community tied to Iran uh, has an unbroken presence since the Guru's period. That is the case of Afghan Sikhs, but it's not the case of Irani or Iranian Sikhs. Uh, so Iranian Sikhs are a diaspora group, which makes them different from Afghan Sikhs, who are not a Punjabi diaspora group, or not, though they speak dialects of Punjabi, do not identify as Punjabi. Uh, whereas Iranian Sikhs do, but I think Something that I'm really interested in showing people is that what it means to be Punjabi is so diverse, you know. 
It doesn't have to be one thing or another. And there is still uh, a deep kind of cultural involvement in the Iranian space, uh, despite being a diaspora group. So I don't think that it makes any Sikh who identifies as Iranian is not any less Iranian by virtue of being part of a historic diaspora group. Um, and people also identify deeply with the cities that they are from as well, which we will definitely be talking more about later. Um, yeah, it's actually, I wouldn't say post-World War II. I'd actually say that the zenith of the community was in the 1920s. That is when um, we see the, you know, the first Gurdwara in Zahedan. Uh, and another thing to consider is that, yes, there's no evidence that the community itself has these unbroken ties, but the Afghan community does. And Zahedan is just miles from the border with Afghanistan and the border with Pakistan. So again, there are certainly ways that Sikhs were present and coming through Iran and interacting with Iran throughout all this time, just because, you know, again, these borders are very, they're very fluid and they only have become highly militarized in recent times. So yeah, the 1920s was the zenith of the community. Uh, Zahedan, which is the capital of Iranian Sistan, Balochistan, is kind of this gateway that a lot of Sikhs ended up in because it was a point of trade that uh, served as a trade hub between India, undivided India, and Iran. And so then you also have a community in Tehran. So it's kind of moving the product from Zahedan to Tehran. What's fascinating is that Zahedan is a very big city today of around 600,000, but at the zenith of the Iranian Sikh community, it was just a village, you know, of maybe tens of thousands, and it had tens of, tens of thousands of Sikhs in it. So there is, you know, Sikhs built this city. I, I can say that with confidence. And there's kind of a folk, um, a folk story or like urban legend that Zahedan is named after the Sikh community because the old name of the city was Dazdaab, which means water thief. Uh, this actually isn't true. Um, it's actually based off of uh, the name of like a historic city called Zadan, like without the H. But um, a lot of people presumed that the city was named Zahedan, which means the pious ones, because of because when the Shah visited Zahedan, he saw all these people wearing, you know, full dustars and having full beards and said, wow, these people are really religious. And so they say he renamed the city. So though it's not a true story, I think the prevalence of this story and the willingness of all locals to believe it shows that there really is such an integration of Sikh history and the Sikh community's history with the history of this city. So it's actually quite similar then with the timeline and storyboard of the Sikhs in, say, for example, Canada, UK, Australia, or East Africa, where, you know, they might have migrated and subsequently formed a diaspora. And uh, in this case, it just so happens to be that with Iran, we've had this historical connection prior to that. And so we somewhat exotify this community, you could say, especially given the fact that they live under Islamic rule. 
there's also just, there's an affinity that's really hard for me to articulate properly because of this. And it really, it comes from this linguistic connection primarily. Iranian Sikhs are very proud to be Farsi speakers. Immensely proud. And also Iranians that are aware of the Sikhs from their country are very proud to have to have Sikhs in, in their midst as well. And they're, yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of like we undermine the length of the history that we have in, quote, Western countries, right? Um, whereas in, among Iranian Sikhs and amongst Iranians, it feels like we project that history and say, oh, yes, of course this makes sense, you know? Of course you're one of us. Um, and that's, you know, it's kind of the opposite phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, and it's, in some ways, it's an exotification when it comes to a six from the broader community looking at us, but in the Iranian case, it's sort of like a, like a welcoming in a way um, that, that is just so different from how how the story of Sikh presence goes when it comes to coming to these white countries, these white settler colonies. Yeah, so it kind of functions in a completely opposite way, which is what's so fascinating about it. So is there anything unique about their religious formation or expression? Say, for example, the particular kirtan they might perform or the way the food is prepared in the langar, you know, because they're in Iran and they, they know Farsi. Noticed any particular differences, but I had a fascinating conversation with an elder from the community who came to my talk on the Persian voice of the Guru in Surrey last year. He was so excited to be there, and we talked in Farsi for an hour afterwards, and it was just such a wonderful experience. And he told me that growing up at the Gurdwara in Zahdan, that they would always start their education when it came to Gurbani with the kids with the Shabbats in Farsi. Like that was the place to start and that he was always told that that's the best way to feel the Shabbat in your heart is to begin with the language that you know best and to begin with the language and, and to begin with Farsi because, you know, there was such an emotional attachment to Farsi and such a deep involvement with the language. And so he recited Yekarj Guftam and like, was literally in tears and was crying and said, you know, I don't think that people will ever know the power of the Shabbat the way we do. And I think that that was really interesting because for other people, for other six, Farsi is the outlier in Shabbat, right? It's, it's kind of like the, the cool thing you would dive into as an add-on, you know, after you get deep into the Punjabi portions, right? But for for their education, that was actually the place they started. So I thought that was really fascinating. And he actually had quite an awareness of where Farsi came up in the Gurdjian side, which a lot of people, they'd be like, oh, I know it's there, but I wouldn't know where to start, where to find it. So that, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation. So let's move forward now to around 1920, when the Sikh diaspora is forming in Iran. Why did the Sikhs go to Iran and... How does this connect with the origin of the modern community that we see today? Yeah, so the the settlement of the modern community really uh, ramps up in the 1920s. And then later in 
the late 30s, early 40s as well. Most people came there for trade purposes. These were people who were engaging in the trade of products that were popularly exchanged between um, undivided India and Iran. So my own great-grandparents would export Iranian pistachios and import Indian tea, for example. Uh, There's also people that were placed there through the military, through the British military, and then kind of segued into trade that way. So what I find interesting is there's a lot of people who assume that Afghan Sikhs come from this sort of trade military nexus, um, but that's actually not really the case for very many Sikhs from Afghanistan, and it's much more the case for Sikhs from Iran. So I just wonder if that's just a little bit of a a confusion that has been born of mixing these two cases up, because that, that's how it appears to me. So yeah, it's mostly for for trade purposes. Um, and for example, my family had already been working out of Quetta, which, you know, and Quetta and Zahnan are both, the, these are the urban centers of Balochistan, one on the quote, Pakistan side of today and one on the quote, Iran side. So a lot of these people were involved in this Quetta trade route as well. So we've reached the 1940s now and What about the 50s, 60s, and 70s? What happens to the Sikh community in the later part of the 20th century in Iran? Yeah, so in the 40s and 50s, you see people starting to leave because this Quetta, Zahran, Tehran route kind of got shattered by partition. You know, you could no longer trade from India to Iran via Pakistan. Uh, And this actually continues to affect geopolitics heavily today. So, you know, I mean, it's it's not really logical to <laughs> have to sidestep all of Pakistan. So my own family, um, their business got a lot harder. Uh, my great-grandparents were getting old. Uh, so they, my Dadima's family did not experience partition firsthand, mostly. I mean, uh, her brother did go to a home that they had in Pakistani Punjab, to retrieve, uh, you know, family gold and whatnot, which was, you know, quite dangerous and a pretty terrifying journey. But generally speaking, her family didn't experience partition directly. But in the wake of partition, there were so many people moving to India and it kind of felt like the right time to close up the business because the trade had become so difficult. So they ended up moving to India kind of along the pathway of you know, the countless refugees. So they ended up in Dehradun, which is also where my Dadaji's family had, they were from Gujar Khan outside of Rawalpindi and they ended up in Dehradun too. So that's kind of, you know, my family's refugee migration story. So yes, yeah, so you see the population go down a bit because of this loss of trade, uh, but remains fairly strong. But, you know, people just over time start to leave. And in the seventies with the revolution, you have kind of this difficult situation where six are not a recognized minority in the constitution. It becomes much more difficult to operate as a full citizen without this recognition. 
not all Iranian Sikhs have been kept away from Iranian citizenship. Some have managed to get it, but a lot of them have had to maintain citizenship through the Indian state. Even families that have had no one be from India or live in India for a very, very long time, which is a very perplexing and confusing story. There is this, again, constant assumption that Sikhs are inherently connected to India. Uh, I mean, this is something that happens in a variety of places on a variety of issues. And as the community has diminished more and more, a lot of it has to do with this, you know. You don't have full citizenship in Iran. Your kids want the best education possible. Maybe it's better to send them to India, and then maybe that can be a launching point to somewhere else. Maybe it's better to go to other places in the Gulf where, you know, uh, there are opportunities for people who aren't citizens. So uh, some of my family members went to Kuwait where they opened their businesses there. Yeah, education becomes a really big issue because if you are not a recognized religious minority in Iran and the recognized religious minorities are Assyrian and Armenian Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians, you cannot get entry into university. You cannot get a higher education. This is a huge problem for the Baha'i community, which is the most religiously suppressed community in Iran. And then it's also true for Sikhs. So, you know, that leads to a, a massive brain drain. And that, um, so that, that's had a really big effect. So the community has been quite small since the revolution, but has still stayed strong. Um, people have still maintained their ties. Uh, a lot of people may have a family where most people have left, but someone has stayed to continue running business in Iran. So, you know, I have friends and, and loved ones who they haven't lived in Iran. Maybe they're Parents haven't lived in Iran, but they still have extended family there. So yeah, that is, yeah, that's kind of a rough decade by decade look at it. Um, I know people who, you know, were still trying to run businesses in the 80s and 90s before eventually migrating, who again, had trouble. I mean, there's, there's this issue of nationality, this issue of religion just has become harder and harder uh, with the consolidation of the Islamic Republic and its rigid constitution. Uh, that's pretty interesting because I I didn't know anything about partition and how the Sikhs were forcibly uh, and arbitrarily associated with India and the other consequences that came with those that were settled in Iran. I'd really like to learn more about that, actually. I'll do some further reading after this episode. I wanted to add that as part of my research for learning about the Sikhs of Denmark, I discovered that many Sikhs after partition from Punjab spent a lot of time in Iran. They would go by boat from Bombay and stop by in Kurumshir and then stop at Iran for a couple of days and then cross over to Turkey and eventually arrive into Europe. Now, this was all happening around the 60s and 70s and 80s and they gave me really detailed accounts of their time in Iran and describing that they were stopping over at the Gurdwaras, and it's really something I want to learn more about. Actually, um, since you had brought that up with me, and I didn't know about that story, and it's really incredible to hear, I 
you know, I had been told when I was in Iran um, by an elder that there was a Gurdugan Saheb in Bandar Abbas, which is a port city, um, and they had rescued it because it wasn't a full Gurdwara, but the place that was housing the Gurdugan Saheb was going to be demolished. And so they, you know, just in time were able to get Gurdugan Saheb out. And I thought that was interesting because I didn't really know of any prominent community living there and having its ties there, but it's possible that that was there. The Gurdugan Saheb was there uh, to host as a means of, you know, hosting and welcoming people on their journeys. And this is total speculation. Uh, don't quote me on it, but it's just, it's something that came into my mind since you had told me about these people coming in through the ports. Yeah, all the all the ports are part of this long labor route along the Persian Gulf for a lot of the Punjabi laborers who would stop at not just uh, Bandar Abbas, but also Muscat, Kurumshir, and Kuwait City. Yeah, I have family that lived in Kuwait for many decades. Yeah, so um, I wanted to ask you that, actually. What is the connection with Iran and Kuwait? Because I read in your notes that the communities are quite connected. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Iranian Sikhs went on to uh, make up the backbone of the Sikh community in Kuwait. So a lot of people who can trace their family to Kuwait can then trace their family before that to Iran. Um, and I think the Kuwaiti Sikhs are interesting as well because they were established long before the big boom of South Asian migration to Kuwait. So I've talked to some Kuwaiti Arab friends about this, and they're actually shocked to know. I mean, they know of Sikhs, but they don't realize how long the Sikhs have been there. It's shocking to them that it has been for so long. Um, you know, since the 20s, 30s, 40s. And there is, you know, I, I have family members who learned Arabic while they were there um, that simultaneously interacted a lot with Arab society, but also had very deep ties to the other religious minorities in their communities. And this often happens where religious minorities get kind of put together. You know, when you're all tiny little minorities, you end up living with each other and, and relying on one another. So you know, you may end up knowing a lot about Christian practices from the Christians that you're living alongside in the same neighborhood. So, yeah, a lot of the businesses especially, you know, got packed up and, and moved along to Kuwait. And how does your research tie into all of this, you know, regarding the urban development and migration and some of the phenomena that can be used to help describe the story of Iranian Sikhs? Well, I haven't done... I haven't made the focal point of any of my formal projects, Iranian Six, but it is something that I've, I've thought about extensively. I think there's some interesting phenomena to think about. Education really makes decisions for parents, and it can make or break an entire community. So when I went to Iran, me and my family went to Tehran, and then we went through several cities by bus until we reached Zahedan. Uh, which, you know, as I said, is quite on the periphery of the country. So when we get there, right now in Tehran, there's maybe four to five hundred six. In Zahedan, there's only 30 or so. And I spoke with them and I said, you know, how how did the community get so small, especially because Zahedan is historically, that is the hub 
of the Iranian Sikh community. And they said it's because um, Sikhs cannot attend school with Muslims um, as per the regime's regulations. And the only school that they had for their children closed. And so anybody with younger people in their family packed up and moved to Tehran. So now all we have is a very elderly community that's there, that's left in Zahanan. And education is one of the primary reasons for migration outward, too. I mean, these are people who really, really want to be a part of their country. They want to be a part of Iran, but um, there, there's this, you know, marginalization from the education system that has really affected migration stories and population. So that's something that I've, I've pondered a lot. I think that access to institutions uh, really shapes people's decisions. And it's not always like, it's not, these aren't stories of, of immense violence or anything like the situation of the six in Afghanistan. It's this kind of slow marginalization that creates this halfway mix between forced migration and chosen migration. And I think that moving beyond that binary is really something that all research could benefit from and something that I think about a lot in the lens of the Iranian Sikh community. Another, this connection to the, this forced connection to the Indian state is fascinating. Um, being presumed to be a part of a state is a very common thread that I, I found this thread throughout migrant experiences in South Asia. You know, I mean, this happens to gone six too. It's assumed that you have some inherent tie to India, but <laughs> doesn't help you get your paperwork from the Indian government. And another story that I came across that was very complicated is the biggest issue that Iranian six face institutionally that does put them in some physical danger is that cremation is both illegal in Iran and extremely frowned upon by religious authorities who sometimes take matters into their own hands to express their disapproval. And the Iranian community was really struggling with where to conduct their cremations. And basically their only options are within the grounds of the Indian embassy. But the facility that was provided for them was also a bathroom. And this caused like huge outrage and the occult got involved and stuff. And I mean, you just, this is a community that is forced to make do with very little and is forced to have to make complicated decisions about their survival. Because if you don't have a place to cremate your loved ones when they pass away, then you don't have a place in that community. The There is no longer a site for cremation in Zahadan. And, and Zahadan soon will have no six in it. I mean, these, these things, access to education, access to burial rights, or in this case, cremation rights, you know, these are things that shape whole communities the world over. Yeah, so I, I just, those are the things I find really interesting. Um, and also, this is a very urban community at, a, at its core. These are people that built what is now a very prominent and large city um, that have 
identity is very tied to their city of origin. This is a community that has made up the backbone of the bazaar in these places and that have done quite well for themselves, but have still faced institutional marginalization. So these are some of the interesting, I don't know, just some of the interesting things that I've thought about that I may expand on further on a more formal basis. Okay, so this sounds like there's a lot of urgency for a project to document the six of Iran. What do you suggest is um, needed in particular? Because we have these elders here where this community is at risk of not continuing, basically. Yeah, there is a huge urgency to document this research. I would love for to put out a call to the world <laughs> and say, are you a sick who has heard that your family is from Iran? Ask the elder in your family about it. Record the oral history. Let's collect it. Let's make a map of where people went, in what years, what their migration stories were. I cannot emphasize how much urgency there is, particularly in the time of COVID. We're losing a lot of people. Uh, my Dadimo passed away from COVID this year. So I think we take it for granted that we have whispers of these stories. And I really would love to see people bring them out in full. I mean, there's just so many powerful things. I sat with an Iranian Sikh elder in Delhi this year, and he showed me these black and white photographs of the Zahadan Sikh society having dinner parties with the Baloch freedom fighters of that era. And that was so incredible to me. And it uncovers a relationship that is so little known to the outside world. There's a really great, the only academic article I've seen to date on the community is also about the interesting interaction between the Sikh community and the surrounding Balochi society. Um, it's not just, Sikhs have not only picked up Farsi, they've also picked up a Baluchi linguistic context as they've lived in Zahadan and moved through Zahadan. So that's something really fascinating too. I also, when I was in Iran, I had the chance to go inside of a Zoroastrian fire temple which is difficult. It's it's difficult for outsiders to get be welcomed in. And I was sitting with the priests and we were having chai and whatnot. And they knew a lot about Sikhs. Um, one of them was from Zahdan. So he had grown up, again, religious minorities oftentimes get pushed together in neighborhoods, right? So he had grown up alongside Sikhs. And also the Zoroastrian community has this sort of functional tie to India by virtue of the fact that the biggest freely worshipping Zoroastrian population is in Bombay. So they also kind of had this complicated space they're navigating where they go to India a lot, but they weren't Indian. And sometimes people would overstate their ties to India. And yeah, so we're having these conversations, but at the end they said, we welcomed you because mainly we had a question. It's something that's been bothering us for years. We have this question about six and, and we thought maybe you could answer it. And I was like, yeah, sure. I thought it was going to be something deep about the origins of Sikhi or, or the, the faith or something. <laughs> they said, how do the men, how do they hear if the stars are covering their ears? <laughs> I just burst out laughing. <laughs> uh, that's, such a, that's such a cute question. It was so cute. And I, I thought they were joking. Like, and they, they were very serious. They were very concerned <laughs> because they also wear head coverings. Um, 
in their houses of worship, but they don't cover their ears. So they're like, see, we don't cover our ears. We wouldn't be able to hear. Anyways, I let my brother take that question. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was really, it was really sweet. And it was really, uh, again, just, I have unlocked whole sections of history in single conversations with elders. So I think that's the purpose of these anecdotes. And I would really love for anyone who listens to this podcast who has some vague idea that some of their family members are from Iran to go ask, write it down, send me an email. I, I really would love to collect these stories. Well, thanks so much, Asha, for a brilliant and insightful conversation about the six in Iran. I'd just like to repeat the call out for participants before closing this conversation, actually. So for all those that are listening, there's a real sense of urgency to document the lives, stories and heritage of the six in Iran. So if you're from Iran or know someone that is, please come forward and contact either Sikh Archive or Asha Sani. The elders that are there now are still with us, but not for very long. We're at a crucial point in time where we can capture the essence of not only their history, but also their parents' and grandparents' history, which has the potential to take us back a hundred years or so for when it all began. And so I really enjoyed doing this episode with Asha and speaking about the six in Iran. It's something I wanted to talk about for a long time. I'd like to thank her for her time and also thanks to our generous Patreons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear from us next in the near future. I'd like to also thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.